out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the writer, Barney Hoskins, who I spoke to very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. As you know, he's been writing books for decades. He worked with the various music papers, including the NME. Um, His new book, God is in the Radio, has just been published by Omnibus Books and is a fantastic read. Um, its subtitle is Writing, Writings on Music from 1980 to 2020. And um, yes, this is the interview. There was one or two little moments of a technical issue that came up, but um, we sailed through all that kind of malarkey and just got down to, yes, the interview. And um, do check it out. The ending is especially good, I have to say so myself. But anyway, that's if you can be bothered to wait that long. So this is it. After several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that very exciting subject that was really, yes, how do you manage to uh, have a career in music writing for that long? And, um, you know, did you start out with that intention? Which probably is no, but um, there you go. This is it. Barney, tell us more about your career in music writing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't set out to sort of become a rock journalist per se. I wanted to be a writer and I was passionate about music. And so I saw I, it was more about, I suppose I had some fancy of writing books. You know, I wanted to write write a book. And, um, you know, from the word go, in fact, before I ever wrote any journalism, I tried to write a book about about music and I mean I was 19 and completely sort of sort of <laughs> and um microphone keeps changing now back and forth yes so I, it did. Oh, I, yeah uh hang on a sec oh your, uh, co- your connection my... your connection's a bit better well it's a bit clearer now flipping between usb and built in hopefully that shouldn't happen. Oh, sorry. So, what I was saying. Oh, you've gone mute. You've you've done a mute number here. Yep, you've you've completely muted. No sound. Oh, let's. Ooh, some, something going wrong. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. Let's forget the microphone. For some reason, it's misbehaving, David. Um, and um, it's too disorientating having this message coming up. Yes. So let me just say again, wherever, wherever, how I I was. Yes, uh, becoming a writer. Yeah. So you know, I um. I didn't set out to be a like music journalist per se. I wanted to write and I loved music and it seemed in some ways the easiest way to kind of get my foot in some door, you know. And I went to New York in the autumn of 1979 in order to actually research this book 
<laughs> that I was going to write that never got written and that was just, as I say, I was completely deluded about my own knowledge, ability, and how difficult it is to write a book. Um, yes. But I, on that trip, I was introduced to a writer called David Sigerson, who <clears throat> I still, I still know and is still a friend and is on Rock's, Rock's Back Pages. And he said, look, go back to London. If you really want to write and you want to write about music, go back to London and go and see Richard Williams at Melody Maker and tell him I sent you, you know. Um, and that was it, really. I wrote a few things for Melody Maker while I was still at university. Um, and then I hoped that I would continue to write for Melody Maker. But uh, as I left, just after I graduated, Melody Maker went on strike. There was industrial action. Richard and others quit. They all left. So there was there's nothing there. And I, what I did was I actually just um, dropped off this manuscript that I now would make me and anybody cringe with embarrassment. It got dropped off at, at NME and Phil McNeil, the assistant editor, um, told me to come in and, and asked me to go and review Adam, asked me to review Adam and the Ants at the Lyceum on a Sunday night. And that was really the beginning of it. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because you got a degree, you got a first um, degree, didn't you? A first degree. First class degree at Oxford University. So, did it? Did, were your parents thinking, mm, "Rock journalism"? I'm not quite sure here. This could, this isn't quite what we expected from this this degree. You know, to be fair to my parents, they really did not sort of have a plan for me or any um, assumptions about what I should do with my life professionally. So. And they, they really believe very strongly in that, I think, that, that, you know, you should be allowed to find your own way and ultimately do what you want to do. Yes, well, there you go. And then, and then at that stage, because musically, I know I did an interview with dear old Nick Kent recently, and he said he started about 73, 74. And it was quite funny because he said the guys who were already there were still expecting the Beatles to reform. And he realised that they weren't going to reform, that it was something in the air and it was going to be punk. And he was right there. Did you feel that at that period, you know, because punk had happened and there was a sort of strange, you know, the musical genres at that point was a little bit kind of, waiting for something and there was the post-punk period but did you feel like oh what's what's going on at this moment musically it was a, an odd time to start writing about music because it was really on this you know i mean again it's going to sound very simplistic because there were all kinds of things going on as there always are but how i look back on it is that it was the cusp of shall we just say like post-punk and 80s pop and I came in right at that moment you know uh people were still writing about bands on independent labels who I look back now and think they were just there were so many interesting quirky like indie DIY type groups I particularly remember the C81 cassette that came out that NME put out and I had just started writing for NME at that point. And I loved that cassette. I would still love it if I heard it today. It was so musically rich and diverse. You know, it had like 
Aztec camera on it and James Blood Ulmer, you know. Um, I think, did it also have links on it as well? It might have had <laughs> links. You know, that's a really good point. Uh, uh, you know, it was really, really, really diverse, you know. But it was very indie, you know. It was very, very indie. But let me just try and think. Joseph K were on it. Um, orange juice. So the, the postcard thing had just sort of erupted. Yes. Like minor but wonderful way. And anyway, the point being that I really loved that cassette and it seemed to me very much what Enemy was about at that precise moment. Let me just shut the window because there's a dog out there. And... get hot and suddenly the heat wave is here where, where are you david where do you live norwich so it's norwich. um it's just clammy really clammy and warm. Clammy. okay I think we, we, we're due a massive heat wave aren't we now um so so it the c81 cassette very much seemed to be what enemy was about at that point but literally within like weeks it seems to me now um, and I mean, was kind of embracing this new movement of aspiring like pop kids uh, who wanted to be pop stars. You know, they really wanted to be on top of the pops. You know, they weren't these sort of, you know, uh, great coated bedsit types who were, who were, you know, <clears throat> making records in the wake of Joy Division and Ian Curtis's suicide and, and and all of that like Manchester gloom and so forth and 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 obviously the fall and so forth. They were like, I suppose I can think of Depeche Mode. I remember going to see Depeche Mode at the venue when they'd only released like their first couple of singles or something. You know, New Life. I remember and and it was like I mean I really loved that gig. I thought they were great. They were really refreshing. Uh, but I didn't sort of realise it was a kind of harbinger of of what was to come, which was synth pop, mm -hmm. you know, haircuts, you know, a, a return and 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 you know, God love it, really, a return to sort of shameless pop exhibitionism, and it seemed almost to kind of tie in with this new, like. I, I mean, not to say it was, it was a sort of like, we've had enough of like left-wing gloom. Let's be a bit <laughs> almost Thatcherite in our ambition and drive to be big stars and make money, you know. Mm. It was very beautifully lampooned by Heaven 17, you know, the Penthouse and Pavement album where they kind of dressed like businessmen. I mean, and that, and that was very clever, you know. And, so from my point of view, I, I've always loved pop music, but I didn't really love sort of the new romantic groups. And I was, I sort of had, well, to say I had one foot in kind of like pop and one foot in, in alternative indie music. I had, my major foot was in, was in the alternative to pop. I mean, I was 20, one or two and you know uh i certainly i i was interested in groups that were 
you know, that were bucking, you know, were rebellious, you know, were, were, were sort of declaring war on, on sort of safe, cozy pop and entertainment that, that who put their lives on the line, you know? And, and, and so for me, it very quickly became the group that I really championed was the birthday party because it was, I went to see the birthday party and it was like, wow, you know, this is just, this is so thrilling and chaotic and, and sort of dangerous, but this is what music should be. Mm. You know, it should be Nick Cave, not Depeche Mode, even though, of course, ironically, they both ended up on mute, you know. So that's where I was coming from. And it was, that, I mean, in some ways, not the most auspicious time to be writing about pop, you know, um, or, 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 or kind of post-punk, you know. So, yes. so I, had to, I had to sort of pin my colours to kind of Nick Cave in some ways, which I did in more ways than one. And then when the Smiths eventually came along, so that was a probably a couple of years later, 83, Hand in Glove comes out. And it's like, you know, I really jumped on that. I wrote the first enemy cover story on the Smiths. And um, and they seemed to offer, you know, they weren't Spandau Ballet. No, no, they, they, they definitely weren't. Because it's kind of interesting, because you mentioned you'd in New York in the late 70s, which that was a sort of an interesting period, because you'd had that kind of weird rockabilly sound or bands you know there was the Rockettes who was it Lee Black Childers had taken from some guys from Essex and took them to New York you know and Smutty Smith and various other people Levi as well and he formed a band there you know and and you know Robert Maplethorpe took that famous picture of Smutty Smith with his amazing tattoos and then you you obviously had the Stray Cats with a band that really made it from that scene and then sort of coming back to London you know, we in 79 was Thatcher, then we, you know, she, she was really unpopular, but then she had the Falkland crisis, which was the deal breaker, wasn't it? And then, like you mentioned, New Romantics and that let's just be happy to be rich was, and not embarrassed, which was very un-English at the time. I don't, can't talk for the rest of the country. Um, but then you did have 83, which I think was a landmark moment, was the Smiths, because up to then, you mentioned post-punk, but then we'd had those other bands like Big Country and Simple Minds and U2. But then there was that sudden moment that Morrissey appeared and from 70, um, 83 to 87, there was a, a glorious period of indie pop. But you were talking about the birthday party, which were a bit more the goth world of the Batcave, weren't you? And then you had a club called Alice in Wonderland who held, had all the Doctor and the Medics and the and sort of psychedelic rock pop scene, which was a bit more silly, I guess, but fun as well. So it was kind of quite a, a weird and wonderful time, the 80s as well, because initially you think you've got Trevor Horn production on one side, Morrissey the other, and various, you know, like Prince and Madonna. But there was a kind of, there's layers of, of music in the 80s, isn't there? And as a rock journalist, it must have been difficult to know which direction to go to. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's always more complex and multi-layered than, um, you know, revisionist history would would suggest, you know. It was a great quote the other day, uh, Douglas Copeland said um, that there's, oversimplification, he said, oversimplification is always thrilling, I think he said. <laughs> that was a, a brilliant phrase, you know, because, it's so easy to oversimplify because it's more dramatic to make some big statement about, you know, what what's happening culturally and how things change and 
and, and, and all of that. It's never, never simplistic. Um, nonetheless, um, there's no doubt that even though, as you rightly say, uh, Morrissey ushered in a, um, a, a sort of return to not, not Joy Division gloom, because, because the Smiths definitely, you know, were a departure from the Mancunian departure from that. But, but everything that like the rough trade label kind of, you know, uh, represented and symbolized, you know, so there were still these indie singles. And then, you know, you got into the whole like C86 thing, you know, the, the, the enemy was very much about championing um, the indie aesthetic with Morrissey at that point uh, as the sort of figurehead. Mm -hmm. um, but in parallel with that, of course, you know, was just a lot of very, very, I suppose you could call it kind of shameless pop. It was, it was sort of shameless, mindless, sometimes great, very like overproduced, quite, you know, very synthetic and non-organic. Um, and production became more and more sort of mechanical. You know, these sort of big sounding records that were coming out of America. I mean, I remember at a certain point just feeling, and then the big, you know, the business of the bands that again were, they wouldn't want to be pop stars, but they were shameless about wanting to be anthemic, like superstar, I mean, stadium feeling yes. sort of, rock anthemists like you two as you say you know and i and i wrote about you two and i was very ambivalent about you two um and i wanted to like them in some ways did like some things that they did i liked when they worked with with eno like the unforgettable fire i liked some stuff on that and i went to do a story on them in america and i was sort of you know, at that point, like many were charmed by Bono. And I still think he's actually probably a nice guy. And I like the edge. And I wrote this piece and it was kind of like, it was very much about, um, it's easy to say that you two are, I don't know, like the new Led Zeppelin or, or, or something like that. But, you know, they're working with Eno and there's interesting stuff going on on this record and yada, yada, yada. Then later, you got, I mean, a year later, it was the Joshua Tree and it was like they were the biggest band in the world, you know. Um, so all this stuff was going on at the same time. And I, I mean, to be honest with you, there came a point where I just didn't feel very at home in it. And there wasn't a lot that I felt passionate about. Was, I, I wrote more and more about black music. I wrote about Bobby Womack and, you know, oh God, you know, I mean, I just did quite a lot on black music. And then eventually I just, with well, the thing that I've really fallen in love with and I'm really discovering now is, is Southern soul. You know, I'd always loved, I'd always loved American soul music and R&B. And, and I had, I knew a little bit about sort of the records that were made in places like Muscle Shoals, you know, mm -hmm. but not very much. And I wanted to know more. And I felt like, I mean, there hadn't really been a book written about that. So what I really did around, I suppose it was 85, I made a decision ultimately to stop. I, I, I had a staff job at NME and I, I let go of it. And it was a big, you know, it was a big thing to let go of, you know, but I wanted to go off and write a book, you know, because ultimately that was, 
that was my dream, my like fantasy, you know, just, just to see my name on the cover of a book, you know. Yes, well, absolutely. And yeah. and most writers, when they start, have a kind of a, another writer that they they sort of have a voice in their head slightly. Um, and I know that there's a writer called, is it Joel Selvin, who did a book recently called Hollywood um, Eden and oh, really? then... And Nick yeah. Yeah. also said he he was Nick Cohen that he kind of um, you know kind of had that voice in his head. Did you have a, another writer that you particularly kind of echoed a bit, and you thought, mm, yes, I, I do slightly use their kind of language or style? I don't think it was any one writer, um, but it was a few, you know. And you mentioned some of the names. I mean, I read. Uh, Nick Cohn's A Wop Bop or Lubop, um, probably when I was like 14, something mm -hmm. like that. And I probably read The Sound of the City by Charlie Gillett when I was 15 and Grill Marcus's Mystery Train when I was like, you know, 15, 16. So these were very, very, these were big influences on me. So, you know, in a way, I wanted to write books a book like those books. I mean, I know they're all very different from each other, um, but but the way, I mean, I think, you know, Cone's, Cone's voice, certainly his sort of irreverence, his, his, his kind of humor, his out, sometimes outrageous kind of opinions, you know, his, his descent from, from kind of consensus, opinions of like Dylan, for example. The, these things, these things affected me. And reading, I mean, reading all the enemy writers, I now think that Ian MacDonald, well, certainly later was probably the greatest of them, the late Ian MacDonald. Um, the stuff he wrote later in his life was just uh, dazzlingly good. Um, and it broke my heart when he took his own life, you know, I just, I couldn't, I mean, I got an email from Ian, Ian McDonald the day before he killed himself, you know, and it just sort of, it was, it was nothing, it was just like, oh, I'm just checking, it was like a fact checking thing, you know, it's one of those just in strange, like, mysteries, it's like, there's nothing you could have read into that email, not that I still have it, but I know it, it wasn't like, yeah, anyway, there was no, no clues in there as to what was going to happen, you know, um, but I mean, I think in the pages of, for example, Let It Rock magazine was, I mean, and I mentioned this in the preface to the book, God is in the Radio, which my new book. Um, <laughs> yeah, which is a collection of, of like pieces from like nearly 40 years, really, you know, and I, and, I, and I said, I bought this issue of Let It Rock magazine in April 74, I think it was, and that, it had an effect on me that like enemy and sounds and other things that I'd read never just didn't because it just seemed almost quite scholarly. And because I'd studied English at university, you know, there was a part of me that was like quasi academic and quasi scholarly. So I was really impressed by the writing in this issue, whether it was about Dylan who was on the cover, I can't even remember who else was in it, but the, it was really what I loved about Let It Rock was that you'd have a piece on Black Sabbath, then you'd have Penny Real writing about, you know, Jimmy Jones. You'd have pieces on country music, like it was a, Phil Hardy wrote this three part thing on like Rick Nelson, Jenny, Ricky Nelson to like Garden Party. And it was like, 
God, I didn't even know you could write about music history like this, you know, in, intelligently in a, in a sort of scholarly way that was also not, not too dry, but was informed and eloquent and knowledgeable, you know, and I thought, well, that's really what I want to do. But it also had Lester Bangs in there. And, you know, Lester's voice was, was certainly very seductive. I, I still absolutely love the way he wrote. And so he got in there, David, he got in there. You know, a number of people got in there and it just, it just set you up. Yes, and, and one thing you probably have noticed over the, the last five years is that um, there's been, you know, quite a lot of books and films have come out. I realise there's a passing of time about 30 years or, you know, 30 years. And suddenly we have films on, you know, the wedding present and the chills and the go-betweens and the slits and, and even the dolly mixtures. And there's been a lot of kind of looking back. So with your new book, have you had a similar experience of feeling like you need to get there and into the archive and somehow reappreciate it and, and sort of reevaluate it? When you say the archive, what, what do you mean? Well, with, 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 with the pieces that you've written here, these are from the last 40 years, aren't they? And I just wondered if you were looking at your own work thinking, actually, I need to make sure these get archived into some sort of format that don't get lost when something yeah, happens. I mean, some of them are on Rock's Back Pages, and obviously I've got stuff on there, you know, which hopefully will remain archived, um, well, for, you know, be, beyond my own... Uh, you know, my own passing, but I have no idea, I have no control over that. But this was more, I suppose this was like, I mean, what I decided, I, I just thought I'm never gonna have time to write a proper, like a book again. I mean, I just don't know that I will, um, or that I'd want to, you know, it's too much like hard work. It's too isolating. And, you know, uh, the last, you know, big project that I undertook was, was, was the book Small Town Talk About. The whole scene up in Woodstock and Bearsville and it was you know it was two years work it was tons of interviews it was it was a big work of kind of you know music history and um and I did think after I think I felt as I was writing it I'm never going to be able to do this again it's too much um so you know of course as the pandemic sort of kicked in there were a few weeks there where you know not not that I <coughs> wasn't working but you know I had a little bit more time to kind of reflect and think and I just thought you know I would quite like I mean it's in some some senses a vanity project but I would like to just uh pull together some of the best pieces I wrote about the music that I've loved the most and I don't think anyone, anyone will publish it but I'll do it anyway and so I was I just looked back through everything and so that, you know, and I ended up with like 50 pieces and they all had to be in my retrospective view, well-written, engaging, amusing, you know, articulate or passionate. And they had to be about, about music that I, that I love then and I still love now. Uh, but a range of things. I mean, it really it goes from Frank Sinatra to Burial, um, <laughs> uh, uh, who, for anyone listening and wondering who the hell's Burial, they're not like some sort of morbid heavy metal band. Um, they are one guy um, called Will something or other. Um, yeah. Pretty anonymous dude who sits, he makes records in his bedroom. And I think they are the most extraordinary sort of... Um, 
records made on I essentially like in recent years. I think I think they are absolutely extraordinary, you know. So so this this was the thing really. It's like it's like can we can we kind of you know bring together a number of very different acts here, but but you know these were pieces that that really I felt kind of went deep into what that music did to me, whether it was seeing Frank Sinatra live probably the last time he played in the UK, to listening to the first Burial album when it first came out and, and just being sort of dazzled by it. Yes, know? well, I know that, um, the, I don't know if you've come across the work of Adam Curtis, the documentary maker. Absolutely. He just <laughs> loved Burial. I mean, I think he's, yeah. the, he's the champion of Burial. I think his favourite song is a nine-minute piece by burial so um come down to me come down to me which he used in the most recent thing yes so, so um, powerful i think it's one of the most extraordinary like pieces of music i've heard in my life it just uh but everything burial's done has um amazed me and astonished me and uh and i mean i don't know it's not it's not that I want to think, oh my God, how can one man like Frank Sinatra, Bobby Womack, the Cocteau Twins, and Burial, but perhaps that is part of it. Yes, well, I suppose that's why, you know, I haven't mentioned him, but John Peel was such a sort of influence on life, in my life, was that, you know, he, he felt like he had the same attention span to me, that, you know, you think, I really love indie pop, but I don't want to listen to it all night. I love reggae, but I don't want to listen to it all night. I love Bulgarian folk music and again, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know. So it's just nice that somebody's curated a show like John Peel did and just said, Look, I've got you the best this, I've got you the best this, you know, and it's like, yeah. and it's just perfect, you know, because it's kind of, you know, because, you know, one gets a bit bored if you're just listening to three hours of, I don't know, dub reggae or three hours of indie pop from the 80s. It's yeah, like, you know, a really, really good point, you know, absolutely. I yeah. nearly included a piece about Peel that I wrote, I think, uh, the Independent when he was about to turn 60 and um, and in the end I, I I left it out only because it wasn't about a musical act you know but um, yeah like many Peel played such a big part in, in in my life even if I didn't sort of love everything he played I mean in many ways it was listening to Peel in the like very early on <clears throat> not sort of in the punk or post-punk era so much. Um, you know, I didn't really want to listen to the, you know, just the fall every bloody night, you know. So for people who haven't come across The Rock's back pages, can you just um, explain what it is all about and about your podcast as well? Because The Rock's back pages are quite an epic project, isn't it? Well, it's funny. I mean, I've been in, we're just moving office within this building, Hammersmith, today. I've been in there and we've been moving our entire archive from one end of the corridor to another. So it's been, um, I had a guy helping us out and he was just asking me about precisely what you've asked me, you know, when, how did it come about, where did the idea come from I and mean, all of that. So I feel like I've been talking about it um, in the last few hours. And I mean, it really was quite simple. I had spent nearly four years in uh, in Woodstock, New York, well, living there, based there, as Mojo's US correspondent, and then moved back to London with my family for, for a number of reasons. Um, and I was just essentially kind of trying to figure out what I was going to do next, you know. Um, 
And I just, you know, it was just at the height, it was the, at the height of that kind of dot com frenzy when everyone was trying to kind of come up with ideas for internet businesses, you know, what, what can I do <laughs> on the internet that's gonna, I mean, not make me a fool, I never expected this to like make me rich, but, um, but it was just like, I it was just a moment of like, I could just, I just had this vision of a kind of digital library where you could read, you know, dozens of interviews with any one act, you know, starting with the first piece ever written about them, you know, right up to like the present day, if possible. So, you know, interviews and reviews and the a sort of definitive library of music journalism and, you know, music writing. Um, which later expanded into, you know, let's start digitizing some audio interviews. So that's become a big part of RBP. But that that was really it. And I didn't know anyone who'd ever built a website. I knew nothing about. I mean, I I had bought an app on I'd been online as a '96 um, in America. You know, Stone Age kind of times and and um, and all of that. But so that was it. I met with, with with my colleagues, Mark and Martin, and we hatched this idea. And um, if I'd known how much work it was going to be, as everyone would say, I would never have, I'd have just turned around. And, uh, but, you know, nothing, nothing, you know, nothing like this ever happens without an enormous amount of toil and sweat. And it, and it, and it has been it has been a lot of work and for a long time it felt like a thankless task and we weren't making any money and I you know it was it, it there were moments of real despair but we kind of got we rolled the boulder uphill and and it didn't roll down again and it it, 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 it stopped being such a steep ascent and it started to level off and you know we have a business that kind of works now yes and um, when we work with publishers and you know if you want to pe put a piece of writing by somebody and it's been in the NME or a defunct paper magazine how does how do you manage to sort of navigate with that journey was there well, a process what you have to remember David is that the vast majority of uh, music journalists certainly from that kind of golden era if you like let's just say the 70s um you know, did their work as freelancers, you know, only a tiny handful were ever on staff. So our model and process was simply to connect with writers who had done all or some or most of their work as freelancers. Uh, so their work was not owned um, by, you know, IPC or whoever it is. Right. So it was simply about, you know, it was about making those connections. We got rolling with about 25 writers, you know, including like Charles Sean Murray. So we got, we managed to get some big names on board, which created a kind of momentum. And I mean, now we've got, I don't know, like 850 writers on, on, on RBP. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work just just kind of uh, engaging with them and um, replying to emails and, uh, you know, quite apart from the business of harvesting their work and digitizing it. And, you know, I mean, it's, 
but that's that's it really i mean you know there's, there's there are we do try you know uh very you know we 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 certainly try not to flout copyright rules but then there are magazines that just don't even exist anymore and i mean the nature of the internet now is it's it's you know it's 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 difficult to sort of police copyrights um and so yeah. There's, there's so much there's so much work there's so many pieces hundreds of thousands of pieces that have been written by by freelancers over the course of 50 years so it's not as if you're ever like kind of running dry no absolutely so do you find that people are coming to you saying i don't want to lose this you know like and you know the archiving of work which i've you know with age for some unknown reason i've become quite excited by um yes do you sort of find that people don't want to lose their work and have come approach you and say you know would love to put it in your you know vaults very much so very much so i mean a, a, a lot of, of writers have come to us and said i want to be you know i want to be on rbp i want to, I want to join the club how does it work um at times it's almost too much, but actually over the course of 20 years, we just about keep our heads above water in, in, um, in terms of, you know, I just sort of trust the process really, uh, you know, but there comes, you know, I mean, I would say that if we had like 5,000 writers on Roxback pages, we would need a bigger staff. We would need more people to, to work with those. And it gets at times quite, you know, it's quite stressful replying to the number of emails that come in. I don't mean just like people saying, oh, I want my work, but just writers who've been on the site for years and, you know, are often just, just emailing some question or, you know, could you add this piece because I need it for a cert? I mean, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work, you know, and, uh, but, um, but it's nice. I mean, and there's still, there are, you know, there, we have a long, you know, we have a, a sort of list of, a wish list of hundreds of writers we would like to have on RBP. There are areas, there are gaps that need filling, there are genres that are not very well represented on Roxback pages. I would really like to have more black writers and more women writers and more writers on, you know, jazz or gospel or country music, or, you know, we're a very, very broad church. Yes. Uh, and, and we, and we, we, we don't, the word rock is there, but I mean, but, it, but that just, that's what we called it because it just seemed the, the right thing to do then. Now, I'm not sure it is the right thing to do and it might deter some people, but I would hope that, I mean, we just had Nelson George on our podcast, who I think is, you know, one of the very best, like, Black American writers on R&B, soul, hip-hop, you name it, uh, there's ever been. I mean, just such an impressive guy, you know. And I almost thought he might say, well, I'm not going to be on a podcast called Rocks Back Pages. <laughs> you know? uh, I didn't know, you know. I mean, I've, I've met Nelson and I've had some you know communications with him over the years but he was very happy to come on it didn't seem to bother him that it's called rocks back pages and we had a fabulous episode that just went live yesterday and um i was just chuffed to bits to get this man uh, on on our podcast he's yes. so impressive i mean just two things because obviously there is i mean it's horrendous the nostalgia of life but there is a kind of a bit of a golden period of rock writing pop writing music writing i mean 
being of a certain age, I have no idea about young people and what's happening now. Is this is music writing still a, a thing like it was in those kind of periods that um, for me, 70s and 80s and a bit of the 90s? I mean, what's what's the scene like now? Because you know, looking back at that period of the, say, the 80s, you know, there was the kind of gatekeepers, you know, you had John Peel, every city and town in, in the UK had venues, you know, like you know, alternative indie nights, mostly on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then you had three, you know, weekly music papers and record mirror, you know, it was kind of a golden time for, you know, writers, for photographers, designers, publishers, you know, people who just want to have a go at putting gigs on for a, a couple of years before they got completely screwed over by someone. And I thought, I'm never doing that again. But, you know, there was kind of a, a kind of an organic industry that sort of developed. What's this sort of, what's it like now? Well, I mean, it's going to sound strange, given that I'm the editorial director of Rocks Back Pages, to say, well, you, I think you're asking the wrong guy. But it's about, I mean, I'm 62, David, you know. So I, um, I am more about the past than I'm about the present. Um, and I'm not on top of, you know, I just don't have time to read young writers on, like, Pitchfork and stuff like that. I wish I did. And when I occasionally do, you know, I, I, I'm excited and, and delighted, you know. Uh, that that people are out there writing really you know eloquently about you know pop culture and uh, and pop music in 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 all its forms and 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 genres but but i don't have time to read a lot of it um i what i would say is that it it's it is different the whole the whole kind of situation is different from how it was in that golden age, whether it was or wasn't a golden age. The point being that there was no internet, um, there was no social media. Uh, there were only, as you say, uh, particularly if you were, you know, growing up and consuming music in the UK, there were these three inkies, or, I mean, and record mirror, as you rightly mentioned. Um, and then along came, well, you know, there were there were other publications. I mentioned Let It Rock earlier. And then, of course, The Face came along, Smash Hits came along. But let's just stick with those inkies. That was, there wasn't anything else. I mean, apart from John Peel on the mm. radio. You know, there really wasn't much else. Um, so the power, the cultural power that those publications had is sort of unparalleled and um, there's no equivalent really now. You know, if you wanted to know about music um, and, you know, <clears throat> new releases and tours and everything that was happening in this sort of, almost like this, this underground of youth culture and, and rock music and festivals and then, Everyone was reading those. Everyone who cared was reading the enemy or the MM or sounds or I mean, depending on their affiliations and their tastes, you know. And so to some you know, to some great degree, these bylines became famous bylines. You know, Nick Kent was almost like a rock star. He was the next, he was the writer as rock star. Oh, uh, yes, the Keith Richards, wasn't he? Yeah, you know, and you know, you 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 were you saw pictures of these guys in the NME, you know, and so they were they were almost like rock stars. And I don't think there's any there's anything like that now. There are a lot of extremely good writers and maybe better writers, you know, 
but it isn't i think most diff there are a number of things that are different and the obvious one is just um you know with the big music stars today it's quite hard to really get close to them or be embedded in their lives or tours or you know their music whereas then you know nick really was like almost like a he, he was almost like an honorary member of the rolling stones you know so it was it was your you know it was your way into the secret world of the rolling stones i mean you know not that the stones told nick ken everything about their lives but you felt like you were just getting you were getting um what's the term celebrity access yes you call it now you know and i just don't think that that the point being david that the way any act be it old or new or young or you know <coughs> the way media now you're you're all over all media you know it's not like the enemy interview you you are you are um there are so many channels to sort of publicize what you're doing there's so many ways of marketing yourself um that it's become very sort of diffused and disparate you know and and so that sense, that idea of like the gatekeepers who really know what's going on, I think that's almost evaporated. And it's more, it's like, you know, my sons, stepsons, you know, you, how do they find out about music? You know, on social media, they're not reading about music really anymore. I think it's just geeks. <laughs> I think it's probably just geeks. Thank God for the geeks. There's enough of them still. And, yes. they, do, and they do care. Did you feel just kind of lastly, because you did, you know, a couple of books, you know, at the, you know, like 2000, was it 2016, 2017, and your last one, Never Enough, this is about your sort of kind of, I suppose, you know, the low point. Did writing, getting into music, did you at times feel like it was just too much to get into a book? Did it sort of begin to hurt emotionally to try and find the truth. I know Nick often talked about, you know, the people he wrote about, you know, he was obsessed with them. You know, is that an obsession that you saw yourself and started to find it a quite a dangerous place to go? I think in order to write a book, whether it's fiction or non-fiction, you have to be obsessive. You simply have to be obsessive, you know. For, in my experience, there is no way of writing a book other than going into a kind of dark tunnel that excludes most of everything else, you know. And, and, and you know, in a way, after I wrote Small Town Talk, I thought I just don't really want to be in that tunnel anymore. And I've kind of probably said what I have to say about about music there's no there's no one act that i feel compelled to write a book about or do a biography about i've kind of written about most of the music that i love i think i'm kind of done you know um and yeah i mean i honestly think that's that's how i felt it's not to say you know never say never i would never say i would never write a, a you know a music book again or or but i'd prefer I prefer to write a different sort of book. You know, I don't know what that would be. You know, Never Enough was a, was a, a sort of different thing. But I think, no, I think obsession is, you know, in all the, you know, I'm, I am, I am, I'm like, like many writers, I am, I am, um, 
from someone who leaves no stone unturned you know I, if, if if there's a possibility that there's some stone somewhere that might have something under it you know i can't really rest until i've turned that st stone over and you know in terms of like writing about musicians or in, a, in a biographical kind of way you're always thinking there's a clue there's some there's some clue to the greatness of this person that um and the thought that you might miss that and you might not turn that st stone over that's the key that's the rosebud sort of thing that's the key to everything you know you just keep searching and you just can't rest and you just you know, I've got to interview this guy and I, I can't finish the book until I've interviewed her you know and at a certain point you just have to say I'm done I'm drawing a line now um, you know if Bob Dylan agrees to talk to me in three weeks about Woodstock then obviously I'm not going to say sorry. <laughs> I'm going to yes. say, hold the press. Dylan says he's going to talk about Big Pink, you know. Um, that was never going to happen, you know. So, but you have to sort of draw a line and say, I'm done. I, I cannot do one more interview for this book. So it is obsessive and, and it's very isolating. And in the end, it's tremendously exciting when you're doing it, when you get a great interview that just really sheds some light on what you're trying to, the story you're trying to tell. It's like, it's so exhilarating. It's so adrenalizing, you know, um, but it's a, it's really hard work. You know, you do a hundred interviews for a book and maybe I get, you get some of them professionally transcribed, but I really don't like, I always wanted to transcribe all my own interviews because yeah, anyway, I mean, I don't need to harp on about that. I, I have transcribed most of my own interviews for the fear of missing something, really, because when you're transcribing, you're thinking as well, you know, and it's, a, oh, yeah, that is, yeah. You know, it just, it's, an, for me, important part of the process. It's a lot of work. It's just, it's just, it's too much work. Why would anyone do it? Yes. And I don't recommend it. No, don't, don't recommend I mean, as with most academics, when they re read their early work, they often feel really embarrassed by it. Did you ever have moments like that with your own sort of, you know, going back and discovering things that you probably hadn't read since you wrote them, you know, 30, 40 years ago? Was there much or anything that you felt, oh, blind, I can't believe I said that? Oh, tons. I mean, lots, lots of pieces that just seemed so jejune and ill-informed and clunky and poorly expressed and um histrionic and pretentious and i mean boy we were allowed to be very pretentious at nme you know we really were and 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 and, and in some ways i love that you know um but i mean my god i wrote very pretentious i'm amazed that i got away with some of the stuff i wrote in nme that's the truth this yes. devour it all it's all you know what i mean there's some there's some value in all of it i think but there are there aren't many pieces from like 1981 or 82 you know that i that i would have picked out from that time because i i didn't know how to write i mean i really was finding my way and feeling my way and you know learning 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 how to write you know it's, it's not an overnight job no did you did you I mean you probably didn't do the 10,000 hours by Malcolm Gladwell but was there a moment where you thought actually this is quite good now I'm not I'm not feeling such a sort of imposter 
Um, yeah, probably. I don't know what that moment was, but I mean, I think, I mean, you know, writers are very self-regarding and self-obsessed and I would say quite narcissistic and, you know, all of those things. You don't, I don't think you write unless you've got <laughs> problems, really. <laughs> you know, there's no need to write. It's not gonna really, I mean, why, why does anyone write? You write because, because there's probably something lacking in your, your, in your sort of makeup, really. There's a, there's a wound there, there's a hole there that needs to be filled, you know, and it's, you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to validate your existence. I mean, I, I will say this, and I say it like, you know, without any, without shame or embarrassment, that, um, you know, I, the pieces I've put in God is in the radio, I, I think they're good, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, like, you know, collected them together and sent them to publishers if I thought they were shit. <laughs> so yes, I, I think they're good, but then, I mean, you can't really be the judge of your own work. It's ultimately not for me to say, but I will say this, that at the end of the day, you know, your own opinion of your work is, is, is I'm not gonna say it's the only one that matters, but if you don't have a high opinion of you, whatever you do, if you are reliant on other people to tell you that your work is good, you know, uh, that is a recipe for, inevitably for self-loathing because you always get you know you're going to get bad reviews and, and and at the end of the day you have to be able to go to bed saying you know well I think I think these pieces are good I think that book I wrote is good and if this guy who reviewed it in the Guardian or wherever the hell it was thinks it's shit um I don't really care anymore I'm too oh. old to care you know and so you do have to you kind of have to have that self-worth when it comes to your work I think and you have to say I've done the best I can you know um and I really I really work hard at at, at my writing and my prose I mean I, I I've no idea whether most people would think it was good or think it was shit but I work hard at it and and, and I try to make it as good as possible. You know, that, that's all I can really say. Yes, and just last, I mean, slightly lastly. Yeah, you know, with the enemy in the 80s, there was often the first couple of paragraphs which just were like quite tricky. And often as a reader, you just kind of slightly skip them and think, right, what about the album? Did Was there a kind of a style during that period that, that people had to get quite pretentious in that early first paragraph? Um, you know, it's a it's a it's a difficult thing to talk about in some ways because um, you know I felt in some ways that the reaction to what we would I suppose call the kind of Paul Mel the Paul Morley and Ian Penman sort of style was so it was so reactionary. You know, I mean, it, it was kind of like by I suppose, I don't know, well, I don't know what year I would say, like, you know, by the mid 80s, any sort of slightly flamboyant, um, exploratory, subjective, experimental writing was really frowned on, you know, and 
And I thought that was really sad. You know, it just became so conservative. And, and you know, I mean, I found myself at a certain point. Let me back up. I think I wrote often very pretentiously. And as you say, the first couple of paragraphs, if I had been an editor, and this is not to blame anyone, you know, who was editing my work. I mean, I now would have said, what the fuck is this? I haven't got a bloody clue what you're talking about. Can you get to the point? What are you trying to say here? You know, um, but I would also, I wouldn't have like totally discouraged, you know, writing in your own voice. And I know lots of people can't abide Paul Morley's writing. I think he's a great writer, you know, uh, who, who created a really novel approach to writing that I think was really, really valid and really, really interesting and almost like metacritical, you know. And I think Penman sometimes was quite clunky in, in the enemy. I think he's become a fantastic writer now, you know. So, you know, there's someone who stuck to his guns and said, well, I'm just gonna, I'm, you can call me pretentious till the cows come home. I'm gonna continue writing like this. And the pieces that he put together in his essay collection, what was it, two years ago now? Um, it gets me home this curving track, I think is what it's called. Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I just sort of dazzlingly good. I mean, there's some of the best music writing I've ever read in my life, you know, they're so thrilling, they're so, they're so just immersive. They go so deep into, every kind of way of looking at like Prince or, you know, or James Brown or, you know, or Charlie Parker, you know, it's like, so I it just, I absolutely loved it. I and mean, it was a joy to have Ian. I mean, I was never that close to Ian, um, but it was a real joy to have him on our podcast. You know, he was so interesting. He's just got such a fascinating mind. I mean, I love Morley and Penman and I'll defend them to the death. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just, you know, it's just kind of interesting. And um, I must admit, I do, I think Paul Morley writing on David Bowie and there was a book he did on the North. I thought yeah. it was just, you know, fantastic. And I thought the Penman book, but it was just kind of a, I just, there was just a bit of a style that used to sometimes be a bit confusing about whether, you know, I'm not, I, I, I can't remember one particular all, uh, writer. It was just this, you know, um, the fashion for that period yeah and yeah i mean I, I understand people found morley difficult you know um and uh but you know anyone who kind of changes the game is going to alienate people and i think i think they both changed the game in some ways and um you know i mean to me the best writer on music of the last, you know, 40 years, probably, or 30, 40 years, has been Simon Reynolds, you know. Um, I think he is an absolutely brilliant writer um, who has written about so many different things, so intelligently and so differently. And, um, you know, so I'm really glad we've got We've got all of these guys on Rock's Back Pages, you know, I mean, that that's what brings me such joy. We've got tons of Morley, tons of Penman, tons of Simon Reynolds and tons of, you know, we've got Lester Banks, you know, we've got Charlie Murray, we've got, we've got, we've got most of the kind of big guns. So, you know, what I would say is go back and read these guys, you know, and, and, and maybe 
you will be surprised reading this years later you may be pleasantly surprised Yes, absolutely. And just, and it, you know, with Charles Shaw Murray, he did his kind of review on David Bowie's Low, which obviously, you know, he must cringe when he reads it now. Did you ever do an album that you really went to town on and then went, oh God, it's become a classic and I've, I misheard it the first time. Did you ever have that experience? Do you know what? I mean, this isn't to sort of say, yeah, I was always, you know, I was always right and I back, I, I back myself up and I stand by every opinion I ever had, but I can't think of, um, I can't think of any one record that I sort of slammed. And I mean, there must be examples. I just can't think of them. You know, I don't think I, I mean, you know, I, I've sort of always felt fairly sure. What I would say is that when I was writing early on, I would sometimes be sort of, irreverent towards music that I just thought everyone thought was uncool therefore I couldn't and and conversely you know I would overpraise things that I thought you know were were cool but in the main I've tried really hard to be true to my gut response to things you know if I really liked fucking handheld in black and white by dollar as produced by Trevor Horn, then I said it, you know, and I really didn't care whether it sort of was uncool or not. You know, I loved so many different kinds of things. I think there there are magnificent records made in every kind of genre, you know, from just absolutely sort of blatant plastic pop to, um, you know, to sort of the, the darkest metal, I mean, I think it's possible to make extraordinary music in 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 any kind of genre, you know. And I and I've always tried. I've always responded to anything that just like, oh my god, what's that, you know? Um, I think was I there a- was there some types of music though, or genre of music like you know? Because I don't think you got a rap one. <laughs> god, not being picky, but you know, the, you know, rap doesn't get kind of a chapter or, or, or a section, does it? Or heavy metal. I just wondered if there were some forms of music which were harder to nail than others. Yeah, I mean, I've never written very, very much on hip hop. Um, and I think because, because uh, maybe a generational thing, maybe I didn't kind of uh, engage with it enough. I've loved a lot of hip hop, um, but if I'm honest, uh much of it i respond to just in a different way to the way that i respond to you know a lot of music that i've loved in other words i don't hear it in quite the same way as i hear the an experience most of the music i've written about in this book mm-hmm. uh, because because i suppose the simple reason being that i respond more than anything else david to the, the sound of the human voice, you know, um, singing. And, and, and so therefore, to me, it's just different. I and mean, I'm certainly not saying, oh, it's not music, because it is music and it's fascinating and it's thrilling and it's, um, but it, it doesn't move, it doesn't do for me what m- most of the music that I really love passionately does for me. It does something different. Mm-hmm. And it isn't really what I want to write about. I mean, with, with say metal, I mean, there is metal that I've loved. I did in a previous collection that 
that I did years ago called Ragged Glories, which is really about American music. I did, there was a piece I wrote about Metallica and I liked Metallica at that point. I really liked the Black Album and Justice for All, you know. After that, less interested, but I interviewed them as they were at work on the follow-up to the Black Album which wasn't as good as the Black Album. <laughs> the Black Album to me was absolutely awesome. And I, I thought Metallica were, 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 were fabulous, you know. Um, so I, I wish I had written more about hip hop. I mean, I've, I've loved a lot of things like, like Wu-Tang Clan very much. And I love, you know, um, I love um, early Kanye West. Um, I love, uh, I love hip hop today. You know, I listen to it, but it doesn't stay with me that long. I love to pimp a butterfly. That was absolutely extraordinary record, you know. So I do respond to this stuff, but because it doesn't have the addictive, like melodic earworm thing that keeps coming back and wanting to just hear that heartbreaking, like middle eight again, you know, it's, it's just a different thing, I think, for me. It's more like, journalists it's more like reportage as opposed to like reading a novel or a short story or a poem or something it's more journalistic i think yes absolutely and just lastly i mean if you could have said something to an 18 your 18 year old self with all the wisdom and experience you've had is there a couple of things you'd have wanted to whisper in their ear that you would have thought yeah that would have been quite handy well, I mean, you know, as, as, as has been pointed out, if, if, if I could go back and talk to that 18 year old, you know, um, then, you know, it, it took going through being that 18 year old to get to where I am now. So, so I couldn't, to go back and change that 18 year old would mean that I hadn't learned the kind of life lessons that, that I have subsequently learned and that, mean that I'm the person that I am today you know I mean so I think it's it's philosophically um, a problematic notion uh, it's an impossibility even if you could somehow time travel what I would say is that, I mean I think anybody um, I mean I mean my, 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 my theory is really this is that you can you know a 62 year old could talk to an 18 year old and say all kinds of very affirming things and ultimately, it's not going to make any difference whatsoever, mm. you know. Um, and that's not to poo-poo the idea of, like, I don't know, mentoring or, or people who make a difference, because I think that's possible. So I would say, all I would go back and say is, you know, to 18-year-old to Barney, boy, you're a really unhappy kid, you know. You're really confused and unhappy and self-hating sort of a, of a, of a lad. And it doesn't need to be like this. Um, and you need some help, you know. Um, you need some love. And you need, you need to let people kind of love you. And you need to believe in yourself. And you're okay. You need to stop living in shame. But, I mean, I don't think... That those would just have been abstractions to me. And, and, it, and it, took, it took a good... It took many more years. Many more years, David, before I was able to realize how you know to use a contemporary phrase, how shame-based i was and how little i liked myself and how you know how difficult that was um so you know 
I would have put an arm around myself and said, you know, it's going to be okay, but you have to learn to like yourself. And, um, and uh, you know, that's, that's all life is really about. Learn to like yourself, learn to love yourself. And, 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 and then you can, you know, you can be of some use to others. When you hate yourself, you can't be any use to anybody. You know, you've got nothing to give other than your own shame. So, so you have to learn to love yourself and then, and then, and then you can love other people. As no, trite as that may sound. No, no, it doesn't. I think this is, this is something that we all sort of slightly, yes, that's probably it actually, isn't it? You know, be kinder and love yourself more. And, um, and then you'll, you'll, you'll make more of a difference to others around you, your so, energy. That's to start with, you know, your relationship with yourself, whatever the hell that means, whatever the self is, however real that is or isn't, because I don't think it is ultimately very real. I think it's a bit of an illusion. Nonetheless, we have the sense of being a self. And if you hate that self as you experience it or perceive it in the mirror or in company or whatever, you know, um, you're going to struggle. You're really going to struggle and suffer. And you've got to embrace this thing that you are um, as it is not you know and you can't live your life on the basis of like something's got to change i've got to be something different i need something else i need to do this i need to make this amount of money i need you know that that the great gift if you, if you can allow yourself to be given it is 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 for for it to be okay to be you whatever that means in the here and now right now with nothing extra you don't need to add anything to that you are already enough um, and, um, you know, you, you, you are a beautiful creature, really, in, in, in you know, as someone put it, a tiny but essential part of the universe. Yes. Did, um, did, all, did writing about music, did that sort of bring out a dark side, especially in the 80s, where, you know, when we were younger, we were a little bit more kind of edgy with our comments and can be a bit, unfit, you know, very lacking in empathy. Did, did that kind of character come out with a lot of your attitudes in in what you were writing about yes it certainly did i mean you know you can read some of the pieces that i wrote in the early 80s when i was you know uh knee deep in drug addiction and there is a very very um angry misanthropic pessimistic despairing uh melancholic self-pity self-aggrandizing character there very very clearly to me um i still think that i cleaved to music because music got me through a lot of pain um and still can do you know it it, it expressed and released stuff for me that i that nothing else did and and, and it still does i think just the the, the emotional power of music is is such uh such a gift it, it just does something for the human soul that i think nothing else can do it sort of sort of liquidizes um one's sort of super ego and one's thought constructions it enables one to access emotions um even when one doesn't realize that's what's happening so there was there were records that just were like friends to me because they you know they made, they just made me cry they made me they, I, they they enabled me to get in touch 
with what I was really feeling because I was so defended against what I was really feeling, you know, and I would put on a record and it was like, even if my brain was like denying the pain I was in, the experience of listening to the record sort of melted me a bit. Yes, I think we're all going to play Gillian Welsh now, aren't we? Time's a revelator. Which, which one? Time, revelator. Revelator, time's a revelator. Yeah, I mean, I love her, I absolutely adore her, you know, and there's a piece about her in the book. And, you know, these are, these are people who, they just touch me. You know, everyone in this book has made several, like, records that just have touched me so profoundly. Yes. Well, fantastic. Well, look, thank you so much, Barney. This has been fantastic and love the book. I mean, I've only got PDF. They're not quite the same, are they, PDFs? You have to then go and buy a copy, but <clears throat> they're a good start. I'm happy with the way the book looks. You know, I love the colour. I really fought for the orange colour. <laughs> and it's, um, it makes me happy to look at it. I think I've done a really good job. So I'm really grateful to Omnibus for, for taking a chance with this. Yeah, I have to say, they have really started to hit gold. I've noticed their catalogue recently and what they've got planned to come out. And it's like, oh, you know, I think they're kind of back on the game, aren't they? Yeah, I think this guy, David Barraclough, has, um, you know, yeah, he's, he's made a real difference and they published some good books. And um, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really, really happy and grateful, um, you know, to be, to be on their list with, 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 this, with this particular tone, you know. Yes. Really, and, uh, yeah, I mean, for once, I don't feel like oh, there's anything really I want to change there. I mean, it might ch that might, might change, but I'm happy with it. Yes, well, that's fantastic. Well, look, thank you ever so much, Barney. And um, I love your podcast as well. It's a, it's a weekly, you know, thrill. Well, fortnightly, actually. It was weekly for a while, and then you know, it just became too much to do. Um, you know, I became as perfectionist about it as everything else, you know, and so... It just took, you know, planning it and, you know, all of that. It just, so I'm happier now that we do it every fortnight. It just, it's, it, it feels, it feels um, easier to do, but I'm proud of it. I think, I think it's, I think it's a good podcast and I, we've really been really blessed with, with the guests we've had on. I'm, 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 uh, you know, we just had wonderful guests uh, they've just been great we've we've had a real we've had a real real fun we've had a lot of fun doing it yeah no, no it's brilliant yeah. i love it it's a great it, it's good I, you know that, that is a classic anyway look thank you again barney and um keep yeah i'll keep in touch but thanks again thanks so much for inviting me and asking me oh, okay no problem take care have a good evening yeah. have a great have a great evening bye-bye Bye-bye. And that was me in conversation with Barney Hoskins, find it out by his latest book, God is in the Radio, um, from writings from 1980 to 2020, available from all good bookshops and also on Omnibus Books, so just in case you need to find that out. And um, yes, there you go. Um, yes, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, that's the C86 Show. Keep it positive or don't bother. And um, I've been doing all these interviews now for quite a long time. A very long time. So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. Do check them out. They might just change your life. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.